All right, it's such a privilege to be together. It's uh, great to sing and to uh, enjoy fellowship with one another and especially good for us to be able to take some time and think about God's word. And I'm excited today because we're going to begin a new series. And uh, so we started out our first series this year looking at our priorities as a church, listening to God's word and, and prayer, and we focused mostly on prayer. And uh, we are actually going to try to put that into practice this evening as we gather together from 6 to 7 to encourage one another and to work at praying together and to work at enjoying praying together. And so we'd love to have you come if you're able. And uh, the plan, I thought, uh, for our second series would be for us to focus in on Jesus. That was the plan. I, I wanted to spend a number of weeks looking at the Gospel of Luke and just talking about Jesus. And uh, one of the reasons I wanted to spend all this time talking about Jesus is because that's what I am hoping and praying will continue to be the theme of our ministry here at CBC, Jesus. Uh, you know, my kids sometimes joke uh, when you're little and you're in Sunday school and the teacher asks you a question and you don't know the answer that you just say, Jesus, and that's a little bit of a joke. And yet, at the same time, it's also kind of true in terms of cornerstone and who we are and what we're about and what drives us and, and what do we want, what's the theme of our ministry and what does the, the pastor preach about. You ask almost any question and I'm hoping the answer is ultimately going to be Jesus. And so I was wanting to look at the Gospel of Luke because we obviously want to know the real Jesus and there is a, a great temptation to actually worship a Jesus that we've made in our own image, a Jesus who looks a lot like us. And so I was thinking we could dive deep into Luke and discover what he thinks we need to know about Jesus. But, and maybe you notice, I was planning, I, I was hoping uh, that was going to be our new series. But as I was planning and preparing, looking at what Luke has to say about Jesus, I realized we kind of have a, a problem because Luke is a historian and he's telling us about Jesus, but he's not just presenting Jesus to us from scratch. He assumes a lot of prior knowledge. His gospel is like the exclamation point at the end of a, a sentence. And maybe I can illustrate like this. So if you just look at the beginning of Luke, uh, you see it has an introduction. Luke chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. And he tells us how he writes this gospel and maybe even more important for us right now, why? Inasmuch, he says, verse 1, as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word, uh, have, as they have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. And it's that word certainty that I want you to notice because Luke is presenting facts here and he's emphatic that he's very careful about how he presents those facts. But he's also honest about his goals. He is presenting those facts about Jesus to lead to a particular conclusion. He wants the person he's writing, Theophilus, and, and really anyone who reads his gospel to be certain. Now the question is, certain about what? Or in other words, what would Theophilus have been uncertain about? And you have to read the rest of the gospel of Luke to figure that out, but I can fast forward a bit because he was not uncertain about the things we sometimes are uncertain about. Like maybe some people are uncertain, was there a Jesus or, or did he die on a cross or something like that. This was way back early on, like less than 30 years or so after Jesus. So there wasn't really any controversy about that, which means Luke's not having to write these stories to say, let me prove to you that Jesus existed. He's having to tell these stories about Jesus to deal with a different problem which is what? There was a temptation to be uncertain. But looking at the stories, it was not so much about the facts. 
So where was that uncertainty coming from? One easy way to answer that question is by looking at the end of Luke. Luke chapter 24. He begins, I want you to be certain. That is his gospel's introduction. And he ends, this is like his conclusion, with Jesus himself risen from the dead, addressing these disciples who are uncertain. And it doesn't take much to figure out, okay, Luke is doubling back, making sure we don't miss the point. So what were they uncertain about in verses 19 through 21, Luke chapter 24? They're, they're sad, and if you have time, you can read the story, but maybe you remember those disciples on the way to Emmaus. It's kind of a famous story. And, and after Jesus asked them what's going on, they start telling them the problem, why they're sad. They start talking about Jesus and say how he was a man who was a prophet, mighty indeed, and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. And this is the key line. It's there at the beginning of verse 21. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. And here's why I bring that up. Because what's going on? What is the problem? The problem is not did Jesus exist or did he die on a cross or even really did Jesus rise from the dead? The problem is, okay, this is what happened to Jesus, but what about all those Old Testament promises? You see, that's why Luke is writing this gospel. He's telling all these stories for a reason. He wants to help us see that Jesus is suffering, that Jesus is dying on the cross, and Jesus is being raised from the dead are actually the fulfillment of what the Old Testament said, which means, of course, if you're going to understand the significance of the stories that Luke is telling about Jesus, what is he assuming you kind of know first? He's assuming a lot of knowledge of the Old Testament. Or to say it in another way, if Luke is concerned that you might be uncertain about Jesus because you're wondering how his dying on the cross and rising from the dead connect to Old Testament promises, What's he assuming you know enough to be hoping in to even have that problem in the first place? The Old Testament. We have to know the Old Testament. And that right there is the problem I'm concerned about and why I thought we can't just start this series on Jesus in Luke. Because if Luke is writing to show you that Jesus is the exclamation point in the Old Testament sentence, you have to know the sentence understand the exclamation point and why it's there. It's really hard to grasp the significance of what Luke says about Jesus without understanding the Old Testament well enough to understand why he tells these particular stories about Jesus, which is why before I begin the series on Jesus in Luke, I want to do a pre-series, you might say, a short little series on the Old Testament and how it gets us ready for Jesus, which we're calling, or I'm calling, Was It Not Necessary? How the Old Testament Prepares Us for Jesus. And so over the next several weeks, I want to explain four key concepts that I think will help you summarize what is going on in the Old Testament, which I know at first maybe kind of almost seems impossible actually because if you look at the Old Testament, it is a pretty big book if you try to read it. It's really long. They say 77.2% uh, of the Bible is the Old Testament of the, and 10% uh, of the New Testament is actually the Old Testament. And so that is a lot of material to cover and it's not just long either. The Old Testament is complicated. Uh, for starters, it's, the, it's old, thousands of years old. So even the New Testament, the part they call new, is thousands of years old. And the Old Testament is even older. And most of us don't read books written thousands of years ago. If you see someone on the train like reading a thousand-year-old book, you're like, whoa, that's impressive. We don't usually read old books. And to make it even more difficult, it was written in another language, so it's translated, and it contains all kinds of different writing styles, and it was written to people of all sorts of different cultures as well, which is why when you pick up the Old Testament, there's a lot of stuff that you're not familiar with. So there are like all these nations that you've never really heard of, the Amalekites, Edomites, Jebusites, Canaanites, Hittites, and 
There's a lot of other stuff that seems strange as well, like laws that you don't know what to do with. There's, I think, a, a whole chapter, actually, that's dedicated to explaining, for example, what to do in situations when a man or woman has a disease on the head and there are like all these different suggestions based on whether it's a yellow hair or a black hair or white spots or, or reddish white spots even. And that's not all. We've got chapters on the kind of clothes a priest should wear, laws concerning cities of refuge, uh, concerning warfare, what to do with unsolved murders. This is a big, old, complicated set of books, the Old Testament. And so you can see people wondering, is it really going to be possible to quickly understand the Old Testament well enough to get ready for what Luke says about Jesus? And I even thought in moving here that it might have been fun to start uh, the preaching just in Genesis 1 and see how long it takes us to get to Matthew over the years, but I think I would be pretty old going at my pace. So we do need to be able to do this a little more quickly, but with how long the Old Testament is, how old the Old Testament is, how different the Old Testament seems, how unfamiliar much of the Old Testament is to us, we can understand someone picking it up and wondering not just can you summarize it, but even more fundamentally, what is this all about? Like what is the Old Testament about? Which is a a good question. It's a, a key question, actually, because even though there is a lot of variety in the Old Testament, it is about something. And I think that's where we need to start. What is the Old Testament about? Because it's, it's like with any complicated subject, while you may not understand all the details right away, if at least you understand what it's basically about, you're kind of on your way. And, and the other way around as well, no matter how many of the facts you know about the Old Testament, you don't really understand the Old Testament unless you know what it's basically about. You can imagine studying a book and someone asks you at the end, what is that thing you're studying about? And if you say, I don't know, they say, well, then haven't you kind of missed the whole point? So by the end of today, I want you to have an idea of what the Old Testament is about. And here is the first step. To understand what the Old Testament is about, you have to start by knowing what the Old Testament is. It's a lot easier to understand something you're reading when you know what it is. It's kind of like how there are different kinds of books. And so there are fiction books, there are cookbooks, there are quote books. And, and say you had only ever read fictional books and you didn't know anything about a book of quotes. Uh, and, and you pick it up. I know you know what a book of quotes is, but what if you didn't? You pick up a book of quotes and you're thinking it's supposed to be just this fictional story, you're going to be confused, obviously. Why are there like these random sentences here with names underneath until you understand, oh, this is a book of quotes. This is what a book of quotes does. And so then you can figure out what's going on and even how you're supposed to read it, which is true with the Old Testament as well. Before you can understand the Old Testament, you have to understand what it is. The problem, though, is that a lot of different people have a lot of different ideas about what the Old Testament is. So for some people, the Old Testament is like a magic book. I remember uh, going on a hike in Africa and going up a mountain and coming around the curve of that mountain and hearing all these shouts. And there were these people all standing there and, and screaming at the sky all these different phrases from the Old Testament because they thought of those phrases as having some kind of power, especially when you say them on the top of a, a mountain. They, they thought it was a magic book. Others think of it as more like a rule book. So you probably heard about the person who tried to keep all the Old Testament laws for a year. He called it the year of living biblically or the year of, we could call it, not understanding what the Bible is <laughs> because uh, he wasn't reading the Old Testament the way the Bible was intended to be read. They thought of it as a straight up rule book. Others of it think of it like an inspirational book. And so uh, they'll flip through their Old Testaments just kind of hoping for some sort of inspirational quote. And it doesn't matter who said it uh, or who it was said to. If it inspires them, uh, that's enough because that's what they see the Old Testament as being about, I guess. Uh, some people think of it as a book of various teachings, almost more like a reference manual, as if it were made up of different articles about how to live your best life or uh, how to debate theology or something, when really the Old Testament is much bigger and better than any of that. Fundamentally, the Old Testament is a story. And, and so there are different kinds of writings in there, obviously, poetry, prophecy, but that's how it hangs together. 
It's telling a story, sort of like if you go to a museum and there are some museums maybe where they just hang pictures on the wall and you walk through randomly and it's got all this stuff and there's no point. But there are other museums like the Apartheid Museum in South Africa where you walk through and there are all these different items from all these different eras there. But as you walk through, it's all put together in such a way to tell you a story by the time you leave. And that's what's going on in the Old Testament. It is telling a story, a big story, a true story, but a story. And you can see that in the way it even begins, right? If you go to the very first page of the Old Testament, what does the very first sentence say? Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters, which is a big way to start a story, obviously, but it's a way to start a story. And it's got an ending as well, the Old Testament. Actually, the ending of the Old Testament is in the New. <laughs> so the Old Testament sort of ends on a, on a cliffhanger. It's not completed. But you do get glimpses of the ending of the story in the prophecies in the Old Testament. Previews. So if you go to the very last page in the book of Isaiah, as an example, Isaiah 66 and Isaiah really is an Old Testament book that's basically the whole Bible in one book. I don't know if that's why it has 66 chapters, but it ends where the Bible ends. Uh, Isaiah chapter 66, verse 22, For as the new heavens and the new earth that I make shall remain before me, says the Lord, so shall your offspring and your name remain. So you remember, in the beginning, we had a heavens and an earth, and now, Isaiah 66, we have a new heavens and a new earth that remain, which means they, they last. And it's not just this place that lasts. There's also worship. God continues in verse 23. From new moon to new moon and from Sabbath to Sabbath, all flesh shall come to worship before me, declares the Lord. So in the end, we have a world that endures, a people that endures, and we have everyone coming to worship before God. And we also have judgment, verse 24. And they shall go out and look on the dead bodies of the men who have rebelled against me, for their worms shall not die, their fire shall not be quenched, and they shall be an abhorrence to all flesh, which is quite an ending. The Old Testament story has a beginning. It points towards an ending. It gives us previews, and it has a plot. In other words, it's not just a bunch of random details and facts and quotes and ideas. As we read the Old Testament, we see how things start, we see how things are supposed to go. We see something's gone wrong. And we learn how and what God's doing to fix it. I mean, this is like a huge story. It's, it's not a, a simple story. The story it tells goes from the beginning of the universe to the end. So it's a long story. It contains all kinds of different characters. So it's a big story. And there's a lot we need to know to understand what's going on in the story, which is why sometimes as we're reading the Old Testament, it's almost like God puts the story on pause. Have you ever noticed that? You're reading Genesis story. You're reading the beginning of the book of Exodus story. And then pause. Leviticus. And what God is doing is pausing the story in order to give us the information we need in order to understand the rest of what we're reading is about. So all these laws and rituals and sacrifices are somehow coming together to help us understand this one big, huge story about God, about the universe, about why everything exists and about where everything is headed. And that means if you're going to get anything from it, you have to understand the story it tells. If the, the Bible is a story, how can you understand the different parts if you don't understand the basic story first? You've got to step back and get the big picture to understand the details. It's a little like if someone shows you a picture they took of Mount Rushmore but they show you the picture they took using the zoom lens. You might be able to notice the, the rocks and sediment and some of the details, but unless they show you the wide angle lens picture as well, you're not gonna be able to really know what the picture is about. Or, or maybe better, it's a little like if you go to a movie and you come home and someone asks you to tell them about the movie you saw and all you tell them is a bunch of details like the main character wore black and he dressed up like an animal, and he had a cousin, and the cousin had all these strange tattoos. What are they gonna say when you're, you're done? They're gonna say, that is not helpful at all. What is the movie about? 
Or if they ask and you start quoting random lines from the movie, like, my son, it is your time, or guns, so primitive. They'll have no idea what you mean because those lines, no matter how many you quote or even how loudly you quote them, aren't gonna help them by themselves, just like the details don't help them by themselves because to understand the lines or the details, you have to know what first? You have to know the story, which is how it works with understanding the Old Testament as well. Until you understand the basic theme of the story the Bible's telling, it's gonna be hard to understand much, especially not Jesus in, in Luke because Jesus saw himself as connected to that story, not as a random figure out there doing his own thing, but someone who is tied, tied to the story we read in the Old Testament, which means to understand Jesus and the Old Testament, we have to find a way to summarize the story it's telling. And there are a couple different ways we might do that, actually. For example, one way we could summarize the Old Testament is just to say that it's about God, which is why it starts in the beginning God, not in the beginning man, because the Old Testament is ultimately about the greatness of God. There are some who describe it as the biography of God, but you probably could better say, since he's ultimately the author, it's the autobiography of God. And one reason God wrote this book about himself is so that we could see how beautiful he is, how important he is, because we can be pretty selfish. And so in general, the person we tend to be most interested in most of the time is ourselves. It's, it's always been a little uh, funny and sad to me uh, because we live in like this big universe and it's got all these amazing things in it. I mean like the world and the universe is incredible. And yet with how big the universe is and how like amazing it is and all the stuff that's happening, while there's lots to think about, the person most of us are most interested in hearing about and talking about is ourselves. And that is going to seriously mess up our reading of the Old Testament. If we're most interested in hearing about ourselves, if we're selfish Bible readers. Some people would say that is like the biggest problem with most people's reading of the Bible. They're such selfish Bible readers. That's why we're like, Israel, Leviticus, please, please talk about me, me, me. We, it's hard for us to hang in there when God actually wants to talk about somebody else. And so if we read the Bible and the Old Testament as if it were first and foremost about us, it will be, uh, we'll be seriously missing the point because the Old Testament is first and foremost about God. That is its reason, the glory of God. But if you wanted to get more specific, another way you could summarize the Old Testament is to say that it's especially designed by God to get us ready for Jesus. That's its purpose. And so what God is doing through Jesus is so big that he takes thousands of years and all kinds of pages in our Bibles to get us ready to understand it. So it's like if I want to teach you some advanced math. I, was, I would say algebra, but that's probably like baby stuff to a lot of you. So some advanced math, uh, calculus, trigonometry or something, is that's, that's pretty advanced, I would hope. If I wanted to teach you some advanced math, I, I probably wouldn't start with trigonometry. I'd have to teach you all the fundamentals of math to get you ready for it. And so in the Old Testament, God is laying the groundwork so we can appreciate what he's doing through Jesus. And in Luke, Jesus actually tells us that. Luke 24, he's walking with a couple of his disciples. They're unable to recognize him. And so he takes them back to the Old Testament. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Luke says, Jesus interpreted to them in all the scriptures the thing the things concerning himself. So we call it the New Testament as if it, sometimes we say new as if it were something completely different than the old. But it's funny how much of the new is the Old Testament. And that's because one of the primary things the New Testament writers were doing was trying to help people see Jesus there. So if you want to summarize the Old Testament, you might say it's about God or you might say it's about Jesus, but there's at least one more way you might summarize it. And it's the way Jesus himself most often did, which is, is pretty significant because he's the author. You, you might say, I wish when you're reading the Old Testament, I wish God would come into this world as a, as a human and explain this to me. He did. <laughs> Jesus did. 
He's God, Jesus, and he went around preaching. And when he went, went around preaching, he went around preaching the Old Testament. And when he preached the Old Testament, he was primarily preaching about one thing. And do you know what that one thing is? So just you can imagine, I've heard someone put it like this. Imagine you were a Jew living in Jesus' day, and, and you got to go hear Jesus preach. And you, you get there, and it's crowded, and so you aren't able to get very close. You're kind of stretching over the guy in front of you, trying to push people to be able to hear, but you can kind of listen in. And as you're listening to Jesus preaching, what do you hear Jesus preaching about? We, we actually know the answer to that question because the gospel writers tell us over and over, Jesus went around preaching about the kingdom of God. Like in Luke chapter four, verse 43 as an example, but he said to them, this is the beginning of Luke to help us see the theme of Jesus's ministry. But he said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to other towns as well for I was sent for this purpose. And it's not just there either. In fact, in my Bible, Luke is, I think it's 41 pages long. And Jesus talks about the kingdom of God 40 times. So that's almost once every page. In, in Matthew, in the Gospel of Matthew, he, record, he records Jesus talking about it even more. I think it's one and a half times every page. According to Jesus, the Old Testament is about the kingdom of God. That is its theme, which is helpful, I think. Uh, but, but obviously, for it to be really helpful, you have to know what the kingdom of God actually is. And this is the first key concept for understanding the Old Testament. The first key concept, I'm going to give you four over the next four weeks. This is the first key concept. If the Old Testament is telling a story and Jesus says the story is about the kingdom of God, to understand the Old Testament, you have to understand what is the kingdom of God. Which maybe seems a little tricky at first because there are all kinds of different ways people talk about the kingdom. If you start listening for this, you uh, carefully, trying to be like super precise, you'll start noticing that like people use the word kingdom of God in Christian circles in like all sorts of different ways. And so you'll hear some people, they're talking about the kingdom of God and it, they're talking about heaven. And you'll hear other people, they'll talk about the kingdom of God and it's like they're talking about the church. And then others will talk about the kingdom of God and they describe it almost as some sort of spiritual reality within you. And then others will talk about the kingdom of God and they're talking about it as if it were something we had to achieve through like uh, the activities we do as a church. But the real question, of course, that matters to us is, is what did Jesus mean by kingdom of God? And, and one way you might try to answer that question is by just looking the word he used up in a, a dictionary. That's what we usually do when we don't know what something means. We look it up in a, a dictionary. And when we look up this word in a Bible dictionary, we see that kingdom refers primarily to ruling, reigning, or exercising authority. In other words, there's a big emphasis on the king part of kingdom. So Psalm 103 verse 19 is an Old Testament verse that helps us get that idea. Psalm 103 verse 19, it says, the Lord has established his throne in heaven and his kingdom rules over all. So according to that verse, what does, what does his kingdom do? His kingdom rules, which sounds funny to us. That's not the way we use the word kingdom. But the word king is an unusual word. If you're a runner, what do you do? You run. If you're a teacher, what do you do? You teach. If you're a preacher, what do you do? You preach. But if you're a king, and God's a king, so if you're a king, what do you do? You king. Now, now we don't obviously say it like that. We say he rules, he reigns, which is what's at the heart of the word kingdom. It's the rule or reign of God. But we can't just leave it at that. Because if someone asks, what is the Old Testament about? And you say, it's about God ruling. Well, that's true. In, in general, you, you, you're right. The question is, however, how exactly does God intend to rule? Because it's a, a story, the Old Testament, about God glorifying himself through exercising his rule, yes. But the story is actually about something a little more specific than that. And to understand how exactly, I think you have to go from looking at the definition of the word kingdom to the Old Testament story itself. The Old Testament gives you three key insights into this great kingdom theme. And the very first thing it does is define the kingdom of God. In other words, it shows us the kingdom plan. And God is kind because he doesn't take a long time to do it either. 
it's, it's on the very first page. Maybe because God knows we're impatient, I suppose. Page one of the Bible shows us the plan. In Genesis chapter one, verse one, it says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, which is like, boom, here it is. So, so as we read the Old Testament, we're gonna actually read a lot about Israel, but the Old Testament doesn't start with Israel. It starts with God creating the world. And it starts that way because God wants us to understand that what he is going to be doing with Israel is bigger than Israel. It is about what he is doing in the world. And as you read the rest of Genesis 1, what you see is God taking this world that he created that was without form and void, which means at the very least that it didn't have order and it was empty. It was a place you could inhabit. It, was, it wasn't a place you could inhabit and enjoy. And so like an artist, he sets about giving it order and filling it as he's crafting it into exactly what he wants to be wants it to be, which is good, which is perfect, which is beautiful, which is exactly how we would dream the world should be. And, and God said, Moses writes, and it was so, and God saw that it was good. That is day one, day two, day three, day four, day five. Over and over, we are seeing the power of God on full display. Like a king, he speaks and the universe obeys. And yet at the same time, over and over, as we see this king work, we're also seeing his artistry as he's making this incredibly beautiful place. But the question we're asking as we open our Bible and see God at work crafting a world and making it good is why? For what purpose? And on the sixth day, we find out what he's up to as he creates man and says exactly what he was creating him for. Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 through 28. Let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And the kind of language that God is using there as he's describing man's role, and this is huge, he's using kingly language. And for us, that's most obvious probably in the word dominion because dominion means what? It means to rule. Let man rule, God says. But that kingly language is also embedded in the idea of being made in the image of God as well because what does it mean to be made in the image of God? It's kind of a big word, but at the, at the very least, it has to do with man's role on the planet. As someone has said, image carries the idea of representation. The word literally means statue. A statue represents someone. And we were made in such a way that we do represent God. And we were put on the planet to represent God. That's who we are and what we're supposed to do. It's actually the same word image that is used in the rest of the Old Testament for idol. When someone saw an, an image or an idol in the Old Testament, that idol pointed the person back to the supposed God it represented. And that's part of why we're here. We were created in God's image, designed in such a way to serve as representatives of the one true king, pointing all of nature and the universe back to God. And we do that specifically as we rule over this world on his behalf, following in his footsteps, really, because you remember how the earth was without form and void, and God sets about bringing order and making it beautiful. And now God has tasked man with that responsibility, which is huge. Because obviously God could have chosen to create a world and then rule over that world himself directly. But he didn't. He chose instead to rule over this world through humans. It's almost like the king placed us here as his governors. He wants to rule this planet through us. And that becomes even more clear in verse 28 where it says, and God blessed them, which is a big word for uh, Genesis 1 and the rest of Genesis and actually the whole Bible when we preach on Ephesians, blessed is there. It's a very big word. God's plan was blessing, blessing, blessing. And how did God bless them? Man, look at the verse again. God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heaven and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So the blessing was multiplication. They were to spread throughout the whole earth 
From, from the very beginning, we, we see that God's plan was to establish a kingdom here on earth, which he would rule through human representatives. So it's kind of like in the very first chapter of the Bible, God is giving us a picture of how he designed the world originally to be. And as we look at that picture, we see God, we see a good world, we see man functioning as God's representative. And you know what else we see? We see rest. And technically, I guess this is the beginning of, of chapter two, but at the end of creating this kingdom, God rests. And you know why he rests? It's not because he's tired, obviously. That's not what the word rest means here so much. It's more like he stops and just enjoys. And that's a picture of how the world was designed to be. And every day from that point on would have been a day of rest and enjoyment. In fact, sometime read the way he describes day seven and see what's missing in day seven from days one to six. I won't tell you, that will be like a little puzzle, but you'll see that from day seven on, the, the, the world was originally designed to be a place of constant peace and rest and enjoyment. That is a big picture view of the kingdom that we find in Genesis chapter one. And then God goes on in chapter two to give us another more precise picture of exactly how it was all to work. It's like he zooms in and we see God creating man and planting a garden and taking man and placing him in the garden, which we call the garden of Eden. And Eden means what? Delight, the garden of delight. In Genesis 2.8, Moses says, and the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east and, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And one thing I've sometimes gotten wrong and it's kind of embarrassing to say this, but and it's kind of obvious, but it, it wasn't obvious to me growing up, is that at that point, the whole world wasn't the garden of Eden. The garden of Eden was a place in the world. And later on in the Bible, it's actually described as a mountain, Ezekiel 28, the holy mountain of God, which is this very special place that was a little like a temple, actually. Or maybe you, should, you could say later, temples were a little like Eden, a, a place where man could serve God and enjoy the presence of God. And that's why in, in Genesis 3, it talks about God walking in the garden, and they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, because that was a way of describing God being somewhere in a special way. For example, in Leviticus chapter 26, God will tell his people, and I will make my dwelling among you, and I will walk among you, and will be your God. And in 2 Samuel 7, David tells God he wants to make him a temple, and God tells David all these years he's been walking about in his tabernacle, which may be why in Ezekiel the Garden of Eden is called the Garden of God. Because, obviously, God is everywhere, but he doesn't reveal himself everywhere in the same way. There are certain places where he is near to his people in a special way, which is how he was present in the Garden of Eden. And that's exciting because the Garden of Eden is a small picture of what God intended the whole world to become. It's like a, a prototype of the world planned by God, a blueprint. Adam and Eve were placed in the garden to extend the borders of the garden, you remember they were to multiply and fill the earth and have dominion over it until the whole world became a kind of Garden of Eden, basically. But first, it's like God puts man in this garden and gives him a trial run to practice serving as his representative. And here, clearly, we see God delegates king, kingly responsibilities to Adam as he brings the animals to him, and Adam must name them. And naming something in the Old Testament world was an authoritative kind of act. It's what kings did to say, you are, are mine. And yet along with this responsibility, God also gave Adam a test. And that test was designed to see whether Adam would rule under God's authority, trusting God, or would he try to take that authority for himself? And, and this is the first two chapters of the Bible. So really, I mean, if we were wondering what is the Old Testament about, we only need to open up the first couple of pages to get the basic idea of the story. It's about God glorifying himself, and it's about Jesus, and it's about this kingdom. And if we want to know what the kingdom means, it's almost like God pulls a picture out of his pocket here to give us a glimpse as 
God, the ultimate king, makes a perfect place filled with blessing for his perfect people to live where they could enjoy a perfect relationship with him and with each other as they serve as his representatives, pointing the world back to him by exercising authority on his behalf and enjoying his goodness forever and ever. That's pretty much the kingdom of God, and that's pretty much God's plan as laid out in Genesis 1 and 2. And yet, of course, that's, that's not at all the way the world is right now. That's the problem, which you might say is the second insight into the story the Old Testament tells us about the kingdom of God. First, the plan. Second, the problem, because all this perfection doesn't last long. It's only two pages in the Old Testament, pretty much at the start, men and women declare that they will not submit to God's authority and they will not trust that he knows what is good. And so instead of listening to God's counsel, they choose to go out on their own and allow an evil being we call Satan to define good and evil for them. And you know the story, but in Genesis 3.1, Moses says, now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that God had made. And it says serpent, but we say Satan because we know the rest of the Bible tells us the serpent is Satan, Revelation specifically. But it says serpent, and why did Satan choose to come in the form of a serpent? Like, why didn't he just show up as an angel of light? That seems like that probably would have been more impressive, right? Why use an animal? There's a reason. It's because God's plan was to rule over the animals and the rest of the world through humans. But what does this animal do? He gives commands to man. He seeks to rule over man. This is an attack on God's plan from the beginning. And as God's king in the garden, what should Adam have done? He should have crushed the snake. Kings protect the kingdom, and yet he doesn't. And instead, the man and woman listen to the animal, and as a result, they are cast out of God's presence, and instead of experiencing God's blessing, they're sent into exile where they experience God's curse. And so we've got all these problems now, and this is where it comes from. Even though we were made to experience a perfect relationship with God, we're born as enemies. And even though we were created to experience a perfect relationship with the world, the world itself is now cursed. And even though we were created to rule over the animals, We see after the fall, animals have become afraid of man, and we're told we're allowed to eat them, and so even that relationship is broken. And and worse, even though we were created to experience a perfect relationship with one another, we're now constantly at each other's throats. And then finally, even though we were created with access to the tree of life, we were created with the potential for living forever. After the fall, God cut us off from that tree of life, which means we would all most certainly die. And so now, obviously, this world in which we live is seriously broken, and we are looking back at Genesis 1 and 2 in awe as we see this picture of God's great kingdom plan. It's beautiful. It's what we want. It's the way we want the world to be. And yet, We know that's not how the world is right now. It is like Adam and Eve, our representatives. They took this great picture and smashed it and broke it into a thousand little pieces. And we might ask, of course, we should be asking now, can God fix this? Does God even want to fix this? After man turned his back on God, does God turn his back on his great plan. Man sins and he's sent into exile. And actually, if you read Genesis 1 through 11, that same thing happens over and over in Genesis 1 through 11. Man sins and he's sent into exile. Genesis 4, what happens? Cain sins and he's sent into exile. What happens with Noah? Noah basically reenacts the fall of Adam as he sins with the fruit of the vine. What happens with the Tower of Babel? All of humanity comes together by Genesis 11 to do what Adam did, shake their fist at God, refusing to obey his command. And so we look at man's rebellion and we ask, can God fix this? Does God want to fix this? Does God have a plan for getting man back into the garden for restoration? And in a sense, that is actually the rest of the Old Testament. That's what it's about. And as we read the rest of the Old Testament, the story of Adam and Eve is repeated actually, just on a national scale. As God chooses this nation, 
and he gives them a special place to live, and he promises to dwell with them, and he promises actually if they obey to make that place what? You read the descriptions, what does it sound like as he talks about the land? It sounds an awful lot like the Garden of Eden again, if they'll obey, but like Adam and Eve, they refused, and they're kicked out of the garden as well. And so as you're reading the Old Testament, you, you see this glorious plan, and you're confronted by man's rebellion, which causes all these problems. And, if you're, and you're, wondering, you're wondering, is there any way for all this to be fixed so we can dwell with God? Which is why the third thing the Old Testament gives you is this big old promise. The plan, the problem, the promise, that is the Old Testament. God is making declarations about what he's going to do in the future. And these promises are about what? His plan to fix what man had broken, to establish his kingdom. These promises are about how he is going to reverse the curse and enable man to rule over his creation. And you know where you find the very first big part of the gospel promise? They call this the proto-evangelium, the first gospel it's right as God is explaining the consequences of man's rebellion. This is always stunning to me, Genesis chapter 3. Because even as God is describing the way man's sin has impacted everything, in that moment, even as he's describing man's rebellion and the judgment he deserves as a result, he's also promising to do something to fix it. This is our God. And that's actually a hint as you read the rest of the story because every time in the Old Testament man does something that you think will make the establishment of God's kingdom impossible. God comes in and judges, but if you look carefully in the middle of that judgment, you'll also see that he makes some promise that actually advances his kingdom plan. Like in Genesis 3.15, Moses tells us first God spoke directly to the snake the one that Satan used, the Lord said to the serpent, because you've done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. And really there, it's like God saying, I'm going to give you proof, a, a symbol that, that Satan didn't win. Don't think the snake won. Don't think Satan won. I, I'm still in charge, and I'll show you how in charge I am. I'm going to make that snake eat dust. And then God moves from speaking to the snake directly to speaking to the supernatural being using the snake in verse 15. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And this is huge because Satan's goal was somehow to overthrow God's plan by deceiving the woman. And so God is going to use the woman and specifically the offspring of the woman to defeat Satan. Again, it's like God's telling Satan, you will not win. And as we read the rest of Genesis and Exodus in the Bible, we're going to see that there are people who align themselves with Satan. They're followers of Satan, offspring of Satan, who war against God and God's plan. Exodus 1, that's basically what Pharaoh is doing and this is kind of how the world goes even now. And yet in the end, God says there will be one descendant of the woman who will go to war against Satan himself and win. I will put enmity, he says, between your offspring and her offspring. And that's plural. Offspring, offspring. But now listen, he, that's singular. We move from plural to singular. God says, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. In other words, God's promising to preserve one line from Eve, and from that line will come an ultimate champion who will go out to war with the leader of the opposing line and take him out forever. Since man's problems began by listening to this evil supernatural being, God promises through man he will one day defeat Satan. Though Satan believed he could manipulate man to overthrow God's kingdom plan, God promises Satan that he will one day use man to crush him. Which gives us hope that God's plan isn't over. God's going to defeat Satan. And as you read the rest of the Old Testament, you really need that hope, don't you? And, and from that promise on, what are God's people doing? 
They're looking for that champion. They're looking for that champion. And really, that's basically what the Old Testament is about. Actually, uh, Genesis chapter 4, you can see at the end of Genesis chapter 4, the first prayer meeting was after uh, Seth was born. And why do you think the people of God were praying after Seth was born? There must have been great concern as Cain killed Abel, because you're wondering what, how is Genesis 3.15 going to be kept? Where is the seed going to come from? Seth is born, there's hope, because this is what God's people were looking for. They were looking for the champion. And the promise starts here in Genesis 3, and as you read the rest of the Old Testament, it, it slowly but surely reveals more and more of God's great promised plan to glorify himself by saving sinners, judging sin, and accomplishing exactly what he intended to accomplish all the way back in the beginning through this great promised deliverer that he would send. And yet, the problem, of course, if you know the Old Testament story, is that it ends having made all these promises without that deliverer having come yet. In other words, the Old Testament story leaves you hanging. It's like a sentence but there's no exclamation point. You're waiting for the exclamation point. God wins, you know that, but how? Which is where the gospel of Luke comes in. That's why he's writing, because Luke is saying, Jesus is the exclamation point. You know those promises? Jesus is the fulfillment. The cross is not a question mark. That's what it looked like to a lot of the disciples at, at Luke 24. It looked like the cross was a question mark to the end of the Old Testament story. And Luke is writing these stories to say, no, no, the cross is not a question mark. It is an exclamation point. And let me tell you some stories now about Jesus to prove it and to show you exactly how he accomplished what God says in the Old Testament he was sending Jesus to accomplish. What is the Old Testament is about? Uh, it's, first of all, first key concept. It's a story about the kingdom of God. Let's pray. Father, we are so privileged. We admit that we are so selfish so often. And so we pick up our Bibles and we're like, oh, this, I don't get this. I don't see what it's about. Where am I? Please talk about me. And Lord, we ask for forgiveness. Here you are revealing the great big plan of how you are fixing what we have broken and glorifying yourself and judging sin and reversing the curse. Here it is. We are the most privileged people on the planet. We know, we know what you're doing and why you're doing it. And we ask that once again, Lord, as we think about your word, that it would thrill our souls. And especially not just kind of in an academic sense where we like, oh, isn't this an interesting how it's all put together? but that your word, the Holy Spirit would take your word, this plan that's revealed in the Old Testament and explained in the new, and it would cause us, you would cause us to love Jesus, to love Jesus, and, and to put all of our hope in Jesus. Please, God, use your word to do that great work in us as a church, and we pray this, Jesus, in your name. Amen.